Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. John Gilmore Riley was born enslaved on the Tallahassee, Florida plantation in 1857. John Gilmore Riley was born into slavery about three blocks from here. After slavery ended, he chose education for a career and became the first black principal of the Lincoln High School that was built to provide an education for newly freed slaves and their descendants. Here, where we're sitting right now, is the John G. Riley House and Museum in what is now basically downtown Tallahassee. And this is Althamese Barnes, the founding director of the museum. Hello, my name is Althamese Barnes, and I am the founding director of the John Gilmore Riley Research Center and Museum. I'm the executive director, and I've been that for 24 years. The John G. Riley House, a handsome two-story wood house, sits in the same neighborhood as the older, well-kept plantation homes. Tallahassee in 1857 was the center of Florida's plantation economy, a system built almost entirely on enslaved labor. Enslaved people outnumbered white people three to one. Of the 279 white families living here in 1860, nearly two-thirds owned at least one person. Once the slavery system broke down or was eliminated in the area, a lot of the properties remained a part of that establishment, and a lot of the Blacks who worked on the plantation remained in the area. Over time, other Blacks moved in. So ultimately, it became this African-American enclave, we call it, and it's where over 80 families settled around the 1870s. The families had stores, they had churches, they had a school that operated out of New St. John AME Church, they had a wood yard. It was a pretty much self-sustaining community. They had pretty much everything that was needed, which was important because it was during the days of segregation, legal segregation. So they were limited in terms of where they could go to shop, uh, where they could go for entertainment and what have you. And during the period of Jim Crow and the Black Codes, this neighborhood, this enclave, became known as Smoky Hollow. Why the name Smoky Hollow? With our younger visitors, we have fun with that. But Smoky Hollow grew out of the fact that, okay, it's an all-Black community. So a lot of the more, I would say, undesirable elements ended up in Smoky Hollow. So you had the electric station, the first electric building, the incinerator where all of the city's trash was burned was in Smoky Hollow. Many of the women did domestic work. White families brought in their clothes. And back then, the women did the wash outside over a black smut pot. So they had to make these fires. And so you would always see smoke coming up from the fire pots. And then the train ran right through Smoky Hollow. So what does it emit? Smoke. So that's all of that is about the smoke part. Then we say to the children, well, where are we? Are we on a hill or no, we are in a hollow. So that's the smoker hollow. 
John Gilmore Riley was a critical part of this self-sustaining neighborhood. As the principal of the Black Lincoln Academy, which later became Lincoln High School, he was known as Professor Riley. He also served as a guardian, a kind of unofficial record keeper of births and deaths for Black people in the Smoky Hollow neighborhood. The majority of houses in Smoky Hollow could be described architecturally as shotgun homes. Riley was able to buy some and rent them to tenants in Smoky Hollow. In the 1890s, Riley built this grander house for his family on the northern end of Smoky Hollow. This house, when it was built, was a very upscale, big deal for Tallahassee for a Black person. Because if you think of the fact that, okay, you have a person who was born a slave, and he was a slave until he was about eight, nine years old. Then along came another time in history when people like Mr. Riley still were not allowed to learn to read and write, so he had to slip and get books. He had an Aunt Henrietta who was very learned, so she would teach him how to read. And then he grows up a little more, and then other people counted on him. And then you had Jim Crow, Black Codes, where Black people, especially the men, were in danger, couldn't do things that other men did. There were lynchings close by because the jail was in Smoky Hollow, and they could pass in there every day. I grew up in Tallahassee. In fact, I grew up and went to school less than two miles from Smoky Hollow but I had never even heard of it, not even once. So why had I never heard of it? That was the question I went to the Riley house to ask. It turns out that there are a lot of reasons, but it all stems from an event that Barnes simply refers to as eminent domain. 14 years after Riley died, the city of Tallahassee decided that it needed the land that the Smoky Hollow neighborhood sat on and proceeded to take it as public property through a process called eminent domain. In 1968, the community was eminent domain. You had maybe about eight families that were able to negotiate and stay in there long enough to get money for their properties. The residents were told that the city needed the land to build a new capital complex. Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. But not much actually came of the project, save for the construction of a new road over the neighborhood. And this was the Tallahassee I was familiar with. The entire community erased out of the urban landscape and out of the minds of people like me. But not for the former residents, who forever resented eminent domain. With most of Smoky Hollow already cleared out, in the 1970s, the city also had its sights on the Riley House itself. The idea was to demolish the house and turn it into an electric substation here. The former residents of Smoky Hollow, many of whom were taught by Riley, rallied to prevent the home from being destroyed. The house was fully restored in 1981. Barnes says that it was the preservationist's goal that the house would serve as a center to interpret local African-American history. And that's where Barnes comes in. In 1996, she stepped forward to turn the dream into a reality, starting with oral histories. We're the first people to come over to get it all cleaned up after the restoration to prepare to open it as a research center and museum. There are many ways to interpret history through aspects of this house. One of the first things I did when I came here, I said, 
We don't want to just be a museum with pictures on the wall. I want to document history that has been ignored, neglected. So with my old camcorder camera and tripod, I did almost 100 interviews. All the people are deceased If people want to know anything about the black history, the real authentic black history, you have to talk with people who lived it. Someone else might tell you something, but your primary source is much better. Today, the dream is realized. The museum doesn't just have pictures on the wall. There's even a talking, audio-animatronic likeness of Riley, which was, in a very Florida twist, donated by the Disney Corporation. If you don't know your roots, people can tell you anything and convince you of its truthfulness. Barnes says that the museum uses the years of Riley's life as an interpretive method to provide context for the legal forces of segregation acting on Smoky Hollow and Black people across the nation. We kind of bring, and we even with, with the birth and death date, Mr. Ryder was born in 1857. So we said, okay, what famous court decision happened in 1857? And if it's the middle school on up students, keep thinking, keep thinking. Oh, Dred Scott, yes, Dred Scott decision. Now tell me about Dred Scott. Black man trying to get us free. Didn't work. Courts ruled against him. Okay, Mr. Riley died in 1954. What happened in 1954? Relates to education. Oh, yes, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. The location reviews of the John G. Riley House and Museum mostly express gratitude to learn what reviewers didn't learn in school. There aren't too many museums in Tallahassee that interpret these kinds of histories. Barnes knows all too well how much work, often bureaucratic work, is necessary to keep the memory of Smoky Hollow in the city of Tallahassee. A more recent example of this comes in the city's development of a new 24-acre park called Cascades Park on mostly land that used to be Smoky Hollow. Now here we are with these 24 acres that we would do this park. And the whole thing was that the people doing the development city, county, whomever, was making no mention of the footprint, the original footprint. So being from Tallahassee, I'm born, born, raised, been here all my life, I started going to the meetings, and they were held on Saturday mornings, and when it was time for Q&A, raised my hand, and it soon got to the point where people knew what I was going to say. You know, I think you need to represent the history of what was here before you make this into Cascades Park, bam, no reference to Smoke Hollow. That went on for about two years. Finally, after a shift in project management, Barnes was invited to create a group that would commemorate Smoky Hollow at Cascades Park. So we met for about, I would say two and a half, three years, identified people from Smoky Hollow, brought them in, did oral histories. We had work groups. They gave, we got a big map. They would come and put a sticker, okay, this family was here, this one. They marked where everybody lived, where every business was located, everything we needed to document Smoky Hollow. The results of Barnes's efforts are now right across the street from the John G. Riley House. Park goers pass the Smoky Hollow commemoration, which includes historical plaques and cleverly designed 3D outlines of the ubiquitous Smoky Hollow shotgun houses. We really wanted to put real shotguns, but then that was the safety security factor and that kind of thing. 
And so we decided, now what should we call these? And went around, so we said spirit houses, because though Smokeaholic is not here, the spirit of Smokeaholic lives on. When she stepped forward to work on the museum in 1996, Barnes was unfamiliar with the museum world. She had worked in state government up to that point. She had never written a grant, but she became familiar with the museum world in Florida. She helped found the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, which features landmarks and museums all across the state. She wrote grants. She helped others write grants. In order to fund projects that were overlooked by the mostly white historical establishment, she realized that she needed to sit on committees that decided which grants should be awarded. And then she sat on those committees. But to this day, there are still resistance. If you go to some of the organizations that are supposed to be representing the state museum groups, associations, go to some of their meetings. And it's really unfortunate because there's a rich history here. Now, I would say during the past, say, five to seven years, I've noticed more and more as a few younger people come up, they are coming wanting to know, well, what are you doing? But it's, it's a richness that people have missed all these years. The, the resources were there, but they didn't have the people with the right mindset. And this is all a part of this social justice that people talk about. And then the house itself built 1890. How many years ago was that? In a person's life, they aren't supposed to still stand. But this house is standing because some people cared about it. This has been Museum Archipelago. This episode of Museum Archipelago is proudly sponsored by me. You might know me as a podcast host, but I also make interactive museum exhibits. And now I'm available to help your institution with any museum technology project. And as I hope Museum Archipelago has convinced you, I do know my way around a museum. Please visit ianelsner.com if you're interested in learning more, or email hire at ianelsner.com to see if I'm a good fit. Once again, thanks to me for sponsoring Museum Archipelago. You can find a full transcript of this episode and links to other episodes at museumarchipelago.com. Museum Archipelago is supported by listeners like you who have joined Club Archipelago on Patreon. If you can't get enough about how museums shape our lives, join now for $2 a month. If this is your first episode, subscribe to the show for free using your favorite podcast player. And if it isn't, leave us a rating or review. And next time, bring a friend.